you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus and life together making disciples. Check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Good morning, Redeemer. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 23 through 29. Hebrews eleven twenty-three through 29. While you guys are doing that, just want to let you know, um, myself and the elders and the leadership of Redeemer are trying to work hard and diligently to see um, what we might be able to do in the weeks to come as the stay-at-home order lifts in our city. It may not change things, it might, but we're trying to work through that diligently and see if we can have any plans for us moving forward um, for gatherings. So just be patient with us and be prayerful uh, for us in that time. Um, But that's all I have as far as kind of announcements this morning. So we're just going to dive in. So Hebrews 11, 23 through 29. Summer is about here, right? We're just kind of wrapping up spring and and lake season is around the door, and and so I've just kind of been thinking about the lake, and then was reminded in thinking about the the lake of Hebrews six nineteen, where it talks about Jesus being the anchor of our soul, and just thinking about being on the water, throwing the anchor in, and swimming again. And so I just wanted to ask you guys, where are you anchored this morning? Where is your faith? Where is your belief in Christ? Is it, is it anchored in him or is it anchored somewhere else? Is it gripped by fear? Is it gripped by worry, by anger? And what have your decisions been like ma- lately? Have, have you been able to make decisions with clarity, with focus, with certainty? Or has it been more uncertain? Has it been more impulsive? Are you worried? Are you anxious? You know, it's been over a month now that we've been at stay at home and some of you have have not had been able to work or have any sort of income. So what kind of anxieties might be building up? And so I asked those questions this morning because we're going to be talking about somebody who had to deal with some really hard issues, a really harsh government, a really hard situation in life where he had to really ask himself where he was anchored, where his faith was at. And so I hope in, in some ways that you guys could be encouraged by this passage this morning in Hebrews. And my hope as a pastor is that I want you to rest. I want you to think. I want you to relate. I want you to respond. I want you to live with certainty, with hope, with faith. A faith that is anchored not in the things of this world, but anchored in Christ alone. And so just to kind of recap a little bit where we've been coming from, we have entered into chapter 11, really this great hall of faith talking about all these great Old Testament figures and how they have, uh, how they live their life according to faith in God, which ultimately has led us to Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, just the chapter prior, we are told of the assurance of salvation, the assurance of things that we have that comes through Christ alone. And so then the author transitions into chapter 11, kind of Uh, illustrating that point out of how all the Old Testament figures had that same assurance, that same sort of hope that would ultimately be realized in Christ. And so today, as we continue on working through chapter 11, we find our way up to Moses. But let's define again, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 reminds us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of of things not seen. And so what we're seeing is that God is using faith through his people. It's a method. It's a means. It's a way by which that God is working out his plan. People's faith does not control God any more than say our prayers would control God. To say that prayer or faith controls God is saying that we can manipulate God. We can fashion him to do what we want. But what we're seeing in Scripture is that our faith and even our prayers becomes the way that God works out his plan. God chooses to use the faith of these people in Hebrews 11 in the Old Testament 
as a way to work out his plan of salvation. And so God is working out his salvation through individuals and through people throughout history. God could do it apart from their faith, but he wants to use it. And why? Because assurance is really the substance of our faith. We can literally see God at work uh, through our faith. And by doing that, by seeing that, we then have assurance of him. And this is really why faith is not totally blind. It's not blind. Our faith is connected to something real, to something tangible, and even something invisible and beyond us. For us today, we can attest to the tangible outcome of faith through the life of Moses and really trust God's word. Faith is the foundation for all the responses in Hebrews chapter 11. For example, Abraham offered up Isaac in response to his faith, not the other way around. Meaning Abraham didn't offer up Isaac to see if his faith was real, but he offered up Isaac because he was responding and acting in faith. Consider the Easter story again. When Jesus was up on the cross, dying, being spat upon, being mocked, being cursed, one of the things those who were reviling him had said was, hey, look, come down off that cross. Ask God to save you from the cross. And if you do, then we will believe in you. That is, have faith in him. But you see, that is not faith at all. That's trying to test God, to manipulate God, to get God to do what they want him to do on their terms. Faith is saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God on the cross. And faith is saying, I believe that he will die and that he will rise victoriously from the grave. So in Hebrews 11 today, what we're going to see in these verses 23 through 29 is really just kind of five different things. I've broken it down. We're going to see how faith is really something that has been before us. How faith really has an aim. It has a direction. And so we're going to see the aim of our faith. We'll see how faith is something that is uh, actionable and it moves us to action. We're going to see how faith helps keep perspective as we live out life. And then lastly, we'll see how faith leads us to freedom. And so let me read all the verses and then we'll walk through this together. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So let us see faith before us from verse 23. And so here we have Moses is born, and we, we really are recalling the story, the narrative of Moses' life in the book of Exodus. So Moses' parents have a baby. The baby is named Moses, of course. And you see it is by their faith that his life is spared. So the, the parents of Moses have faith, and we don't really know what it is that they do know or don't know, but we, we can take uh, a pretty good educated guess based on scripture that they still had understanding of God's word and his promises from the book of Genesis going back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Joseph. And it says that in these verse that his parents saw him and they saw that he was beautiful. The Exodus narrative says that he was a fine child. He was a good child. And so that you kind of wonder, okay, so they saved him because he was a beautiful kid? Is that what was going on? I don't think that's the intention here, and I don't think that's the intention of the author. I think there's a, there's a unique divine destiny that Moses had about him that his parents could see. There was some sort of conviction. We don't really know any other details, but they knew that Moses' life was to be spared. And so by faith, 
they acted to save him. And so they hid him from the king or Pharaoh. And so what we see with Moses' parents is that they feared God. They did not fear the king. And why is that important? Well, you have to understand in this time, Israel lives in Egypt. And this was a good thing. When you wrap up the book of Genesis, Joseph saves his entire family by bringing them into the land of Egypt. It was a good place. It was a place where crops were growing, where they could build homes, and it was a safe place for them. But over time, this Pharaoh rose up, and he saw that the people of Israel were starting to grow in population. And he became fearful that they were going to outnumber the Egyptians and eventually take them over. And so out of fear, this king, instead of maybe just asking them to leave, he decides to just commit genocide. Kill all the baby boys in the land, because if you get rid of them, you get rid of really reproduction and no more Israelites. And so in that moment, Moses' parents knew they ran the risk of crossing the king and knowing that even their own lives were at stake here. But instead of fearing the king, they feared their God. And so the story of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt is really, it's not just about or only about an oppressive government, an oppressive people, and a powerful nation um, being destroyed and a poor, lowly people being delivered from them. It's also a story about a nation directly opposing God and God um, coming out and fulfilling his promises. Let me explain. When God came to Abraham, he promised Abraham that he would have a son. And from his son, he would have multiple sons. And eventually, Abraham would have offspring that would number more than the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore. And so when we crack open the book of Exodus, 400 years after the time of Joseph, what we are seeing is that promise beginning to be fulfilled as the nation of Israel is growing more numerously more than the sand of the shores, more than the stars of the sky. And so what we're seeing here is a nation like Egypt is really not just opposing a people, but they are opposing God and his providential plan. And so God, this story is about God acting to keep his promise and to fulfill what it is he plans to do. And so it appears that the parents of Moses understood that God was going to come through on his word. They didn't know maybe all the full details of everything, but they knew by faith, we need to save this baby boy. And they do. We need to remember something here. We stand as believers, 21st century, we stand on the shoulders really of faithful men and women. We didn't just come to faith in a vacuum and we didn't just come to understand who our God is in a vacuum. Moses' life was spared as a baby, not because Moses did anything, but because his parents acted faithfully before him. Faith precedes us, but then it moves in us and through us and beyond us towards someone or something else, right? So how has faith come to you? Have you thought about that? Who was it or how was it that you heard God's word and then believed? I can recall in my own story of just how I came to faith and it wasn't anything that I did on my own. I wasn't going out to meet God. God really came to meet me. And so how is it that God came and met you? Moses' parents didn't know what was going to happen to their baby. I mean, could you imagine putting your newborn baby in a basket, in a river, trying to hide him so that he will not be, would not be killed. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what the next 40 or 80 or 120 years of Moses' life was going to be like. They just trusted that this is what God wanted them to do. So let me ask you, what is your faith moving you toward? I mean, faith has come to you. God has shown you his word. You have belief and faith in Christ. But now, where is it taking you? Where are you going? Are you needing or wanting to have all the answers first in life? Or are you willing to just act in faith knowing that God is going to do something, that God has life under control? 
Perhaps today God is telling you to simply trust him by faith and just leave the results to him, not to you. And remember, faith is moving, is not only come to you and it's working in you, but it's going to work beyond you. Meaning, parents, your kids, you have a responsibility to share your faith with your kids. You look, maybe you don't have a family, you don't have kids, but you have a responsibility to live faithfully among your coworkers, among your peers, among your neighbors in this community during this time. And so what you may not see is that God has a plan. He has a plan for you. You may not be able to see it, but your faithful life is not in vain. I mean, did Moses' parents really know what was going to happen? Did they really understand how everything was going to unfold? I would say no. But their faithfulness, their faithfulness, set in motion, really, if you will, this great act of deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. It was amazing how God used very simple, plain people to bring about salvation. And so maybe you fear something. Maybe you're afraid of something. So what is it or maybe who is it that you might fear that keeps you from acting out faithfully? Maybe you fear a circumstance or situation instead of fearing God. Sometimes we make decisions out of fear of man or a fear that things are, or certain situations are going to come about instead of just thinking about what God thinks. Have you seen what happens when we make decisions out of fear rather than out of a healthy fear of God? It may get us far in the moment, but ultimately in the end, it's just a big let down. And so next, the aim of our faith, the aim of our faith, verses 24 through 26. I want to read these verses again. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses at this time in the story is estimated to be about 40 years old. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He had everything he ever needed, everything he ever wanted. And one day he goes outside and he sees his people. He sees, he understands he's not a true Egyptian. He is an Israelite. He is a Jew, if you will. And so he had no worries in life. But then the story in the book of Exodus tells us that Moses went out and it says he looked upon their burdens. He looked at his brothers, his sisters, and he saw their burdens. He saw all the labor, them having to make bricks without straw, seeing babies being killed, seeing all the pain, seeing all the sorrow, and seeing how Egypt is just constantly afflicting them. And Moses makes a decision at the, around the age of 40 in his mind saying, I don't want to be with Egypt anymore. I want to be with my people. He wanted to be identified with them. He really wasn't identified with them. He was an Egyptian. He counted the cost and he decided by faith really to leave Egypt behind. He wanted to transition to be with his people. And he kind of reached a point in his life where he was just ready to take that risk, to take that bold move, to leave wealth, to leave an abundance of food, to leave security all behind and be with an impoverished people. He considered then the wealth of Egypt, which was so much more than he could ever need. And then he considered the wealth of Christ, which had no real immediate or real tangible riches in that moment. But when he considered that, he found the treasures of God by faith, ultimately through Christ, to be infinitely more valuable, even if it meant he would become homeless or even if it meant he was to lose his life. Moses found that it would be better for him to lose everything than rather be in sin among the Egyptians. So the big question is, how could Moses, who existed so long before Jesus, know Jesus? We're clued in by the Bible that Moses 
faith rested in what God would slowly reveal to him over the course of his ministry to Israel. Moses encountered God multiple times. Moses was really the author of the Old Testament, of the Pentateuch. He was he had God's word. God spoke to him. And God spoke to Moses as a prophet and told Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 that there would come a prophet after him that all Israel would look to. And so we kind of pick up clues throughout the Bible in that God told Moses that there is somebody coming after him that is greater than him. And when we jump to the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 7, Stephen, in his great sermon, his final sermon before he dies, he recognized that Jesus was the prophet that Moses spoke about back in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Moses chose to be mistreated. That was an act of faith that would eventually be fulfilled and revealed in Christ. And that is the reward that he was looking toward though he could only see Christ really dimly and not as clear as you and I could see him today being 2,000 years on the other side of the cross. So Moses, in that moment of decision, he saw Jesus. He saw the Christ and he treasured him. As Christians, we have really two categories of, of thinking or making decisions. And it comes down to simply this. We either make decisions according to God and his word or really according to the ways of the world. So either according to God or the world, to Jesus or the devil, right? And so here in this story, we have really the pleasures of sin, which is what Egypt was involved in, and really the pleasures of God. And so thinking of those categories, where is your treasure? In which category do you find the most pleasure. What is it that you would have to give up or let go of in order to have Christ? Moses stood there looking at the burdens of the people, counting the cost. He knew what he had to leave behind and he made the decision. What is it that you have to let go of in order to have Christ? And is Jesus worthy enough to let go of those things or let go of those relationships that really may be providing you really just temporary pleasures and comfort? Are you excusing sin today? You know you're in sin, but you're just excusing it. It's not that big of a deal. And if so, really what you're admitting is that you don't see the value of Jesus. You don't see him as a greater treasure, as something more valuable. It would be like you're standing there with Moses looking at the burdens of the people and you decide, I'm just going to go back inside and just let this thing ride itself out. Consider really the value that your sin has, the treasures it provides for you. And then consider Christ, what he has done for you, what he offers up to you. I mean, is there really anything more valuable and precious than salvation in Jesus? Is Jesus truly the aim of your faith? I mean, you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a disciple, a follower of Jesus, whatever it is. But really, is Jesus the aim of your faith? I mean, if I were to ask your closest friends, say, hey, can you tell me what the aim of that person's life is? What would they tell me? Would they tell me it's Christ? Would they say it's something else? And Jesus is just kind of slapped on the side. And so we keep moving on in this narrative. Into verse 27, we see now our act in faith. So Moses thinks and he responds in faith, but there's an action that follows. And so he ends up leaving Egypt, he's not afraid of the king and because he's enduring, um, he's enduring as seeing him who is invisible. And so Moses is standing on this. I just have this vision. He's standing on this platform overlooking the people and he sees their burdens and he decides in that moment, I want to be with Israel. And so what does Moses do in that act? He or in that decision. He decides to act out and he 
does so wrongfully. He ends up seeing an Egyptian wrongfully treat um, some of his brothers, the Israelites. And so, he, and so Moses, when nobody was looking, decided to go out and kill that Egyptian and bury his body in the sand. So in Moses' mind, he stood up for his people. He thought, I've done the right thing, and surely maybe this would win my people over. If you were to jump to the New Testament, to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he shows us, he reminds us in the storytelling of Moses that Moses did not win his people over. They questioned him, if you will. When Moses killed the Egyptian, he put himself in a position of really neither being identified with Egypt anymore nor with his people Israel. He was kind of in this middle ground. Moses saw that his own personal plan, his own good plan, really was a failure. And so instead of sticking around by faith, he left Egypt and went to the land of Midian. And so why is the land of Midian considered an act of faith? In my estimation from Scripture, Moses knew that if he stayed, he would most likely cause more damage for his own, for his own people than if he would have left. It's very possible that Egypt would rise up even stronger against Israel, and it's possible that Israel would rise up in a revolt. And so the potential outcome would be far more devastating. And so Moses leaves. He's not quitting. He's not giving up. But he humbly leaves the picture because he knows he really messed up big time. So he heads to Midian. And in the land of Midian, Moses accepts really the life of a shepherd, a lowly shepherd. It's here he, he has a wife and he starts having children. But even while he's in the land of Midian, he's still undergoing identity crisis, an identity issue. In fact, while he's there, they recognize him as an Egyptian. And Moses really comes back saying, look, here I am in a foreign land and I am a stranger. Moses really doesn't have anybody that he can associate with anymore. He's no longer an Egyptian and he sure isn't feeling like he is one of the Israelites. And so it's here in this kind of humble, lowly position of Moses' life after he has failed big time that God meets with him. The Lord meets with Moses, and this is the great story of the, the burning bush. The bush is burning, and yet it is not consumed. Moses hears God's word. He sees really his faith come to sight in this burning yet not consumed bush. And in this conversation, God calls Moses out of his life of shepherding and back to Israel to lead Israel out. And if you kind of read that story, Moses spends time really kind of debating God on the matter. It's kind of like, hey, I've been there. I've done that, God. Israel won't follow me. I won't really have a voice with the people. I kind of blew it. I messed up big time. But God replies to him, basically saying, look, listen, they will listen to me. And I'm going to be the one who gives you the words and they will follow you because ultimately they are following me. And so Moses encounters him who is invisible. And it is in this moment he begins to clearly see. Are you trying to take matters into your own hands? You know, COVID has taught us bottom line that we are not in control. We're not in control. But yet, even in our best of intentions, some of us are trying to be heroes amidst the situation. You know, some of us want to save everyone from the government. You know, we want to save everyone from COVID-19. We want to save everyone from hardships, save everyone from hunger, save everyone um, from financial loss. And ultimately, what we need to stop doing is trying to be the big H heroes of everything. I'm not saying don't do anything, but some of us are trying to be the big time heroes, kind of like Moses. Hey, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and kind of do it my own way. But I want to challenge us to not try to be the hero in the situation, but what if we just look to Christ instead? And so are your decisions in this time more impulse-based, are they, or are they faith-based? Moses was more impulsive, which is why he ended up killing the Egyptian. But now that he's encountered God, 
he has made a faith-based decision to go back and help lead Israel out. And look, church, we too have seen the image of the invisible God, if you will. It's a paradoxical statement. How can you see something that is invisible, right? Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He came down as the visible word made flesh. And before us today, we have the word of God. We have testimony about the image of the invisible. Like Moses had God's word before him. We now have God's word before us. And it is in the word of God that we have assurance. It is the word of God that commends our faithful convictions, our actions. Moses knew God. He had faith prior to the burning bush. It wasn't the burning bush that led Moses to faith. It was the burning bush that reassured Moses of his faith. We don't need to see Jesus face to face in order to have faith. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We don't have to see all the places where Paul went. If you remember, again, the religious leaders told Jesus, come down off the cross and then we will have faith. But that's not faith. That's trying to manipulate God to get what you want on your terms. And that's ultimately what Pharaoh does in the story of the Exodus. So for those of us who have faith in Jesus, we believe because God's word has come to us and we heard it and then we believed. And that was enough. The treasure of our faith is that we get to have in hand the very word of God, which tells us about the greatest treasure, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. It's kind of like when we have the word of God, it's like we're holding the burning bush of our faith. The Bible reaffirms and reassures us of all of our faith. And so how about you? Are you waiting for the invisible to become visible before you will have faith in him? And be honest, if he showed up in your living room right now, I mean, would you even change your heart? Would you go, oh God, yes, I I believe 100% your word now. Or would you be like a prosecuting attorney and cross-examine him and say, look, Jesus, um, you have some answering to do. I don't think you need anything in front of you. I don't think you need Jesus to show up in front of you. I think what you need to do is not examine Jesus and question him, but examine your heart. Ask questions to your heart and ask yourself if you really believe what God has done and what God has said to be absolutely true. Maybe you are a believer, but you're finding yourself constantly messing everything up. Just like Moses, you mess it up. You meant for good, but ultimately it hurt people and it wasn't what the Lord really wanted you to do. You thought in your mind it might be. You're looking at yourself as a mess up. You're thinking, man, I'm a failure. I just want to give up. I'm done. But I want you to consider the story of Moses for a moment. God didn't show up to Moses in the burning bush bush saying, look, man, if you hadn't only messed up, if you hadn't killed that Egyptian, man, if you just held on for a few more minutes and didn't make, and didn't make that choice, then maybe I could use you. Really, God showed up to Moses and said, I am. I am the one who will save Israel. I've chosen you, the mess up of all mess ups, to go in, to speak to the people of Israel, to speak to Pharaoh, and to, with my power behind you, lead them out of Egypt. Let me be honest, church. You and I, all of us, we are all failures. All of us. We're all hypocrites. We're all sinners. But remember, it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. God is calling us by faith to follow him. Our eyes are to be on him. And along the way, he may use us to accomplish his will, his plan. So stop putting so much pressure on yourself to try and perform. Stop trying to put so much emphasis on your failures as though God is incapable of using you. Let's turn our eyes away from ourselves and turn our eyes to him who is invisible. Let's turn our faith to Jesus and find that we can actually see more clearly when we do. Moses humbled himself. He became a shepherd and figured his days in Egypt may be done. But ultimately they were not. 
And so I want to call you to humble yourself. No matter where you are, no matter what it is you're doing, humble yourself and wait upon the Lord. Listen to his word. Call upon him in prayer. Be in step with his spirit. And when it is clear and the timing is right, do what God has asked you to do. Moses in Egypt was a little egocentric, taking matters into his own hands. But in Midian, he finally came to an end of himself. And it was there in humility that God met him. So you want to see him who is invisible? You want to hear his word? Humble yourself. Draw near to his word. Draw near to the Lord and watch as he draws near to you. And when we lock on to our faith and see where it takes us, it then helps give us perspective. Verse 28. So by faith, he keeps the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The Passover, again, is really a memorial for Israel of how God has delivered them from the Egyptians. God's word came to Moses, instructing Moses on the Passover meal. And so in obedience to God's word and by faith, Moses listened and he obeyed God's word and he led Israel to prepare and take part in the first Passover. And so we have to remember in this first Passover, Moses and Israel were not 100% sure how everything was going to go down. God gave them instruction and said, I'm going to deliver you. But all the details of it and how it was, what sort of impact it was going to have, none of that was experienced yet. So they believed by faith that God, what he had told them, was true and that everything was going to be okay. So they acted in faith and then they patiently waited and watched. Israel watched as the Lord sent the destroyer over the land and for everyone who had the blood of the Passover lamb over their doorpost, their firstborn son was spared. And for everyone else, it would be judgment. Israel obeys. Egypt does not obey. Egypt underwent judgment and loss of life that very night. It was a very loud cry and scream in the land. And eventually, the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians. But here's what the Passover reveals. There is a much bigger picture and a bigger problem at hand. It's more than just Israel coming out of Egypt. When you read the story of the first Passover, you'll notice it wasn't that just the Egyptians needed to have the blood over them. It was that both Israel and Egypt, if they wanted their lives spared, would have the blood covered over them. And why? Because the issue at hand is not a matter of nationality or borders, but a matter of holiness and faith. There's a holy and righteous and perfect God who has been sinned against. And so God, even though he has chosen his people Israel, they are just as sinful and guilty of sin and evil as the Egyptians when compared to a holy God. And so this is the bigger picture of the gospel that Moses, I think, seems to understand throughout his life and, and ministry to Israel that God is not after nations. He's after the heart. Had Egypt turned to God and participated in the Passover, they too would have been spared from the wrath of God. But they refused. They rebelled. They disobeyed. And so by the time we reach the New Testament, and especially here in the book of Hebrews, we learn and understand that because of the sacrifice of Christ, there is no longer the need of the blood of animals to atone for sin. It has all been perfectly accomplished in the blood of Christ. So Moses institutes the Passover with Israel and ultimately anticipating Christ. Sometimes we can look at the story of the Exodus and try to put ourselves in the shoes of Moses or Israel or Pharaoh or Egypt and, and we try to kind of see how we relate. But I'll say this, no matter who you try to relate to in the story, we all can relate to this one reality that all of them and all of us are equally sinners and all of us are equally in need of the blood of Jesus. We, none of us, whether you're Israel or Egypt, are capable of bringing ourselves into right relationship, peaceful relationship with God that can only be done through the blood of Christ. 
And so without the blood of Jesus, you and I would be facing the wrath of God. And I think that's a huge hole in our theology kind of here in the West. We assume that wrath is not somehow compatible with love. And because we don't think it's compatible, we decide to either ignore wrath or just really deny it altogether. We have to remember, God's wrath is not like our wrath. God is love. We know this. And his wrath is bore out of his love. It's bore out of his righteousness, his holiness. If God's wrath was really as nasty and evil and as wicked as our culture says, then the story of Exodus should look completely different than it is. God should not have given Pharaoh really so many opportunities to let Israel go. God should have tortured Pharaoh, tortured Egypt, overthrown them, and left Israel and Moses really just out of the picture. God would have also maybe turned to Israel and threatened them to be loyal to him. You be loyal to me or else. But that's not what happens. That's not the God of the Bible. God's wrath was patient. It was long-suffering. He was even kind towards Pharaoh, kind towards Egypt. Multiple times he gave them opportunity to enter into his grace, but really they refused. And God was kind like a father to Israel, leading them out of slavery, caring for them in the wilderness. Year after year, Israel would complain to God. They would even turn to idols, and yet God would not kill them as some evil, angry, bloodthirsty God, but he would give them food, give them water, give them clothes for the rest of their days. God ultimately was leading Israel to the reward. God's grace has been extended to his people. And so to face God's wrath means really that you have just rejected God's grace. So church, we have to remember we serve a loving and just God. The significance of the Passover is that the wrath of God would be poured out onto the lamb and not his people. You and I deserve not grace, but God's holy wrath. And the only way we can be spared of his wrath is by the gracious act of Jesus dying on the cross in our place. Jesus is the Passover lamb who bore the full wrath of God so we wouldn't. And because of Jesus, we have an immense peace that has swept over our souls because we are no longer enemies of God, but considered his very children. And that what that's what makes the gospel so good, so complete. And I know it seems obvious, but the question I want to ask is, when was the last time you looked at Jesus on the cross and said, thank you for taking the wrath I so deserved? When you consider the wrath that no longer points at you, then it should help you see that because of Jesus, it is now impossible for God to be wrathful toward you. If all of God's wrath has been poured out onto Jesus in your place, then that wrath is no longer left for you. Some of you need to look at the Passover in faith, remembering and being assured that God is not angry at you. God is not looking at you saying, you know what? I did pour out my wrath on Jesus, but it seems I didn't pour enough. Now I need to pour out some more wrath on you. Never does the Bible tell us that to be true. It's time, Christian, for you to live by faith, knowing that Jesus took all the wrath that was meant for you. And in in exchange, he has given you freedom from your enslaved hearts. You and I can then make decisions about our day, doing what we do and no longer feeling under Uh, the wrath of God. We no longer are under condemnation, but we are now under grace. And so, yes, we mess up. Yes, we sin. But And no, it's not okay. But thanks to God, through the gospel of Jesus, that we believe that God has satisfied all of his anger, all of his wrath that was meant for us in his own son, Jesus, on the cross. Our lives, then, are to mirror that grace towards others. So today, give a faith-filled thanks to God for removing from you his holy deserved wrath and placing upon you his everlasting grace. So stop with the defeatist attitude. Stop saying that God is upset with you. Stop being anxious really for nothing. Stop being worried that you've screwed it all up because chances are you have screwed it all up. Stop being so centered on you and start being centered on him. That is Jesus what he has done, the grace that he is 
placed upon you forever. Moses could have really been depressed and and down all his life for his terrible act of murder, but God allowed for his sin, the wrath that he deserved, to be placed on Jesus on the cross. And so the same is true for you and me. Now live in that truth by faith in Jesus. And watch, really, as that continues to lead you to freedom. And that is my final point. Faith leads us to freedom, verse 29. And so we see Israel crossing by faith the Red Sea on dry land where the Egyptians were drowned. So faith now goes from Moses alone to the faith of the people. It was not just God acting on his own, but God acting through faith of collective Israel. God could have parted the sea apart from their faith. He could have done all of those things, but he used the faith of Israel to work, to save, to part the sea. It is their faith that God uses to have them pass through on dry ground. And it is by their faith that God brings them through to the other side. And the Egyptians, on the other hand, it is their lack of faith that brought the sea upon them, that God would close the sea upon them, that the ground would clog up the wheels of their chariots and they could not pass through to the other side and they would die. And so Israel's faith led them to freedom. You and I need to understand that our story of deliverance from sin is not an isolated story. We're not just individuals saved by God's grace, though we are individuals. We are a community of God's people saved by God's grace. Perhaps that's another hole in Western thought, this idea of individualism. We make everything about us as individuals, and unfortunately, it has bled into the church. This is why the church is so important and why gathering is so vital. The faith of Moses was not his own alone. It was also Israel's. Moses wasn't the only one who walked through the sea, but he was there with an entire nation, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of Israelites. And so when we start turning our noses up to churches that want to meet together, and I'm not just talking during COVID-19 time, but ever, when we turn our noses up to them and stay satisfied with doing our own little house church way from everyone else, we act like we're the only ones who walk through the parted sea. And I understand that in certain parts of the world, we have to do house church because of persecution And they have to meet in homes. But most of you talking about the context of where we minister, you're not being persecuted. You're not being forced into your home. We have generally bought into the American ideology that we can do church on our own and we don't need anyone else else except our Bible and maybe our family. Imagine for a moment if Moses stood before the parted sea, he looked back at Israel and said, I love you guys, but I'd rather just go through this on my own, maybe with my family, and just leave you guys behind. So why do I say all this? Because our faith is much bigger than us. The faith we have is a beautiful gift given to us by a very big God who is over a very big family. God is not only drawing us to faithful unity in him, but to one another. God is showing us through Jesus that we all have crossed the sea together. And by faith in Jesus, we have all together watched our sin be crushed by the waves of God's wrath into our Savior, Jesus, on the cross. This gives us reason, great reason to hope and to rejoice. If you go to the book of Exodus, chapter 15, right after they cross the sea, there's a there's a large worship service that takes place. Imagine hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Israelites singing this song and worshiping and exalting God. Can you imagine how loud and powerful that worship service would have been with all of them together? I think we need to long as the church for as many of us to come together as possible for the sole purpose of giving Jesus praise for what he has done. Not for the sake of our names, not for the sake of the notoriety of of our church name or our entity, but for the sake of his name and his glory. We need to see how big his grace is. We need to exalt his love because it has reached so many. When we see that we're not alone in our deliverance, that is where we can then come alongside one another and say, hey, remember 
when God brought us through that sea together? Remember when he delivered us from oppressive Egypt? You're not alone, brother. You're not alone, sister. No, no need to be so downcast. No need to be so full of sorrow and so grieving. Come, we're in this together. Because what we do as the family of God is we remind one another of that assurance of faith that we have in Christ Jesus and what it is he actually accomplished on the cross. And that is worth getting together. And so here's the good news of Jesus. He is greater than Moses. He is the aim of Moses' faith. He is the assurance of Moses' faith. Jesus was born a beautiful child of unique divine distinction. He was born under the time of a ruthless king who despised the promises of God. And Jesus, too, survived genocide. Jesus looked at our burdens. And instead of running from it, he saw the cross that was set before him. And when the time was right, he too was called like a son out of Egypt. He faithfully kept the Passover and he was the Passover lamb. He then faithfully brought us from death to life through his resurrection. He took us from enslavement to sin to being enslaved to righteousness where freedom really is. Moses' life ends really declaring him one of the greatest prophets of all time. But if you remember, Moses reminded the people that there was a prophet who was to come. That everyone would want to look to. They would need to see him. He is the answer. And so the great prophet has showed up and his name is Jesus. And he has come to fulfill all the law, all the prophets, all the Psalms. There is no longer a need for a temple. There's no longer a need for sacrifice. There's no longer a need for priests. There's no longer a need for prophets. All of it has been perfectly fulfilled in the work of Jesus. This is the hope and the assurance of our faith. So again, where are you anchored this morning? There's no real hope in government. There's, real, there's no real hope in stay-at-home orders. There's actually no real hope in returning to your jobs. None of those things bring us real joy. None of this, those things bring eternal hope or assurance. All of them will ultimately fail. No matter how things go down, turn to Jesus in faith. Do not succumb to fear and impulsivity. Turn to the anchor of your souls. Turn to Jesus. Jesus has saved you. The Father loves you. God has given you a church family to walk through the wilderness with you. You are not alone. Jesus sees your burdens. So make today, while it is still called today, the day you choose to live by faith and not by sight.